Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you had a wonderful week. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Brad Hansen. He's one of the members of the Northwest Fisheries Science Center, so he's a part of NOAA. Um, he got his PhD, master's degree, and undergraduate degree from the University of Washington. While he was getting his PhD, he worked on developing um, and improving tag attachment systems for small cetaceans. He currently studies the foraging behavior and habitat use of southern resident killer whales and does health assessment of dolph porpoises. So we're going to get more into that in just a second, but I did want to let you guys know who our whale of the week is. So it is J38 Cookie. Cookie is Oreo, J22's only living offspring. He did have a brother named Double Stuff J34 who died in um, late 2016 and cookie was first spotted in 2002 so he's now a full-grown adult we can tell because he's got that six foot dorsal fin and he's often seen traveling with his friend mako j39 also just want to remind you guys that we are continuing our how i kelp campaign and we've loved the video submissions that you guys have sent in so continue to send those in we're definitely feeling inspired by you guys and know that you're inspiring others so we're looking forward to seeing that that campaign will end on the 27th of March. So if you do want to submit those, submit it before then. And then the person with the best video is going to get a free breaching extinction t-shirt. So um, be sure to do that. And before we get started, just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breaching extinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's easy. Go to audible.com slash breaching extinction. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your current role is, and how you got here. Okay. Yeah, the the last part of that question, I'll, I'll try to make sure that it's the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah, so I'm the uh, team lead for the marine mammal ecology team at uh, the Northwest Fishery Science Center of NOAA Fisheries here in Seattle. Excellent. Um, and so how did you come into your role um, in this uh, and find this interest? Well, I've been interested in killer whales since I was a kid. And uh, so the very first project that I got to work on as an undergraduate uh, when I was at the University of Washington back in the mid-70s was actually on a radio tagging project of transient killer whales. Um, way, way back, like I say, in the 1970s. And that, that had cemented my interest in killer whales at that time. And I went and did a lot of other things in the inter intervening years. And then uh, in the 1990s, uh, a collaborator of mine, um, Robin Baird, and I did some work on looking at diving behavior of southern residents using time depth recorders. And and then when the listing occurred, um, or was proposed, I should say, back in the early 2000s, I was on the status review group. And then subsequently, uh, with the endangered listing, um, there was uh, a couple of positions that were 
created, and so I applied for um, one of those positions, and um, here I am, you know, some 18 or so years later. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, are you from Washington, I'm curious? I am. I was, uh, I'm, I'm a native. That's awesome. Um, so you recently published a study um, titled, let me find the title here, um, Endangered Predators and Endangered Prey, Seasonal Diet of, Southern, of the Southern Resident Killer Whales. Can you tell us a little bit about this publication? Yeah, this is <clears throat> essentially a follow-on to a couple of previous publications that we had. So back in uh, 2010, we published a, um, a, a, a look at what the whale's summer diet uh, was. It had been suggested based on some work from John Ford that they were in, uh, they were Chinook specialists, but the sample size was relatively small, and so we felt that a more dedicated approach uh, was in order. So we went ahead and uh, collected samples um, over a few summers, uh, beginning in about 2004. And uh, in, <clears throat> uh, John Ford, in fact, contributed some of his samples that had been collected in 2007. And so we published that in 2010. And then in um, 2016, uh, Mike Ford, who's a collaborator of Hours at the Northwest Fishery Science Center um, had published um, a, essentially a follow-on paper to that that incorporated uh, looking at um, uh, diet via feces from fecal samples that we had collected uh, and compared that to what we'd seen in the summer. And so that established um, that approach. Um, so that actually had to be developed. There had been some work by pinniped biologists back in the <clears throat> early 2000s, but uh, developing this for, for whale feces was uh, something that had, had not been done, at least for um, uh, killer whales. So with that in hand, we took those two techniques and expanded you know, into other areas and other seasons um, to look at what killer whales were, what southern resident killer whales were consuming in some of the times of year when they aren't, you know, particularly common in, um, you know, in inland waters. So uh, this included samples that we collected in the fall in Puget Sound, and then uh, also uh, a number of samples we collected on the outer coast during the winter and spring months. And um, those are pretty unique because there just hasn't been a lot of information uh, available about where a where the whales spent their time, and B, what they were actually consuming during that time period. Um, and that, as you might expect, was fairly challenging because weather conditions out there are not necessarily conducive to small boat operations in the winter. But um, we were um, able to take advantage of, um, at least in a couple of years, um, uh, deploying satellite tags in the whales, and we were able to follow them for a couple of weeks at a time, and that significantly boosted our, our sample for those areas in those times. Excellent. Yeah, I was going to ask about the scientific process, but you pretty well explained that. So what did your, like, if you care to expand on that, feel free to. Um, but I'm curious about what were the findings of this study? Well, just, you know, backing, backing up a little bit, the, the way we originally had started the study was just collecting uh, scales and tissue samples from uh, when we observed predation events. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the technique that John Ford had developed uh, with Northern residents, and he had reported out uh, <clears throat> back in in 1998, and then uh, again uh, an additional uh, body of work in in 2006. And so, but we expanded upon that, you know, based on what we had seen pinniped biologists do with uh, their um, the um, their work on feces, it, they, we were able to uh, essentially use that um, approach, which essentially incorporates the um, incorporates looking at the proportion of DNA that's um, of different um, species in in the diet. Because there was always a little bit of concern that we were potentially underrepresenting some of the um, uh, some of the prey species in the diet because not necessarily all of them might be either brought to the surface and shared amongst animals uh, because one of the features of these killer whales is being these fish eating specialists is that they they also prey share um, amongst individuals. That doesn't, you know, but we were concerned that you know, there might be some prey that they don't prey share for whatever reason. And then some prey may not necessarily, you know, um, be conducive to being collected, i.e., you know, salmon typically have lots of scales that they shed, but there are other species like halibut and uh, lingcod that we discovered in the equal portion of the diet that, you know, we never did have lingcod show up in any of the surface, you know, predation event samples, although we did have halibut uh, show up a couple of times. So, uh, and that was part of what we did find was that we did see some differences in the diet relative to in, in the winter and that, you know, the, the fecal um, diet results tended to show a, a broader diet with less Chinook in it. So, and that we essentially concluded was due to Chinook just not being as available as they are, say, during the summer when the fish are more aggregated returning to their natal rivers. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so did you find any challenges when conducting this study? Well, all of it was done essentially opportunistically. I mean, there, you know, we just had to... We we knew going in that um, you know winter distribution was identified in the um, biological review that was done, and as well as in the recovery plan as being one of the primary data gaps. So you know just trying to figure out where to go look for them <laughs> yeah. was was a was a real challenge. But we had some in, had some information from our acoustic recorders, which suggested that. You know, areas down around the Columbia uh, would be probably a good place to look. And then, as we were able to develop the satellite tagging technology you know, that we used in the middle, uh, the mid-teens uh, of this decade, uh, we were able to, as I mentioned, be able to follow them essentially 24/7. And then, as weather opportunities allowed, we were able to launch a small boat and essentially employ the same techniques that we had developed um, in the during uh, during summer in their summer range. Okay, awesome. So um, 
you know, kind of the narrative, at least that I've seen, is that, like, they need more Chinook, um, but now we know that they're eating other things. Do you think that we should change our management approach now? And, like, why is it important that we use science when coming up with good management practices for conserving wildlife? Well, the the managers are always looking for, you know, hard data in order to back up their management decisions because, you know, as you might expect, um, there are, you know, conflicting ideas about what, you know, what to what to do in terms of how to manage for different species. I mean, Chinook, uh, as the title infers, have their own problems in terms of, you know, they are in many cases endangered species. I mean, that's one of the major findings was just that a large proportion of the fish that were being consumed both in Puget Sound as well as were coming from other watersheds, you know, on the outer coast are in fact all listed as endangered. And so, you know, most of the manager's focus that, uh, as far as uh, salmon managers are concerned have been focused just on salmon for salmon's sake. And so the point of this was that they also need to consider, you know, these Chinook stocks relative to, um, you, know, the, you know, the whales trying to meet, partially trying to meet the whales needs. Mm-hmm. So, and then... But the other aspect was just that we found, as I mentioned, halibut and lingcod, but also sealhead. Now, those are all commercially valuable species, and that can potentially help meet the whale's nutritional needs at different times of the year. So the point there was just to make managers aware of those, the potential value of those species because they also are, are you know, man- there are people that are managing those particular stocks. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that that was the main thing, was just to get other people thinking about these different species in terms of potentially helping them meet the whale's needs in other seasons when Chinook just may not be available because, you know, obviously there's, there's lots of different stocks and, and a couple of different life histories and so on and so forth, but trying to, you know, be able to universally put Chinook in places that the whales frequent throughout their range throughout the year is probably can't be expected to be done. And right. particularly given the challenges that many of these stocks face, you know, um, in terms of the own the the conditions that exist in these different watersheds, and because there's been challenges over the last hundred or more years in many cases, and then there are you know upcoming you know challenges that you know for instance from the Fraser River that big bar slide that happened uh, a couple of years ago is probably going to impact uh, many of the spring stocks you know in in the upcoming years, and there's just you know, other issues relative to drought in California. You know, climate change is probably going to be an issue based on some of the modeling work that, um, you know, researchers at our center and, and other uh, places have done. So there's <clears throat> a lot of considerations. And, and the, the point was just to be able to provide concrete information about the importance of, of these stocks uh, to these whales, as well as, you know, potentially some other species. Absolutely. Um, 
so you know it's, I think it's so interesting that we're we're looking to conserve a different endangered species to help another endangered species um and I like that you guys you know put that together because that is you know really important, and all of it is in, interconnected um so do you like should we still be you know making like should we i don't know maybe reallocate where we're putting our energy or should we still just be trying to conserve the chinook as much as possible in your opinion? Well, I think the main emphasis here was to, you know, show that the whales are eating um, stocks of Chinook across a broad swath of, you know, the West Coast of North America, and that includes both, you know, the U.S. and Canada. Um, and so it's – I've been asked many times <laughs> which stock should we conserve, and I think the answer here is eat all the above. And um, so it, it's, it's uh, as I mentioned before, I, I know it's fraught with challenges on the ma salmon management side because they're already doing a lot both on the, the you know, hatchery um, propagation front as well as on restoration. But um, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I take away from this is just that all the incremental efforts that are being made within all of these different watersheds are potentially important. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, when work is being done in, in, in the Central Valley, it's potentially going to benefit Southern residents. Work that's done on the Klamath is going to be potentially you know, benefiting Southern residents. Same thing for the Columbia, same thing for the Fraser River. All of these watersheds are important. So within those watersheds, even, you know, a some small restoration project is potentially going to help the whales. None of these are going to by themselves uh, allow for the recovery, and that's I think that one of the things that I've seen touted by you know some groups that, for instance, on the Elwall restoration, that I don't disagree that it's a really good and valuable project to do, but in and of itself it's not going to re result in the recovery of southern residents. It's certainly mm -hmm. going to potentially help, but you have to look at it from the standpoint of that, you know, these whales consume a lot of Chinook salmon every year, and they do this <clears throat> throughout, you know, their range, which extends from you know, essentially Monterey Bay clear up to uh, southeast Alaska. And so... And the whales also have evolved to basically move through their home range relatively quickly. I mean, that's one of the things we learned from the satellite tagging was that, you know, they could be in Puget Sound, <clears throat> you know, um, in sometime in, uh, let's say, late December, and by a week and a half later, they'd be in Northern California. And right. So, and so part of that evolution has been for them to move efficiently through their range, or at least this is my speculation, is so that they can, because they've always had to deal with fluctuations in, in Chinook runs. There's natural things that happen, just like the big bar slide mm -hmm. up on the Fraser River that have caused reductions in these various stocks. So the point is, you, as a, a specialist predator like they are, to be able to move very quickly throughout your range to be able to assess it and how they assess it I don't know but they obviously do 
to a certain extent because they make decisions about where they go, you know, particularly seasonally. They, you know, they typically don't come into Puget Sound during the year time but the fall. Um, right. Although historically, I, there is some evidence that that might not have been the case. So um, anyway, the the point is is that you know they're they're making decisions about where to go based on where they think they're going to most likely meet their prey needs. Yeah. I'm curious. So you said, like, historically there's some evidence that shows they may not have gone there in the fall. Um, well, if you look if you look back on some of the sighting information that uh, Ken Balcom had um, pulled together back, um, you know, when he first started a study back in the late 70s, um, it wasn't unusual for Southern residents to show up during summer in Puget Sound. Okay. So. Excellent. Um, I'm curious if there, like, if there's a role in indigenous knowledge, like, within the scientific community, because, you know, obviously they're the ones that were here for hundreds of years, and I know that, like, you know, they're not, like, they're not taking data sheets, you know, on them, but is, does that ever play a role in our, like, you know, kind of understanding of these animals or in data collection? Well, it, it hasn't in the, in the current study, but I um, I'm, I'm all. One of the things that I've been spending a lot of time doing is trying to read as much um, historical information, and some of that uh, includes uh, information of, uh, by provided by Native Americans in terms of you know their their perspective on things, uh, in terms of what they were seeing and taking advantage of. Trying to for me to try to better understand what. Uh, the environment looked like in terms of both salmon and killer whales. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. fascinated, you know, how killer whales played a prominent role in some of the uh, tribe's histories in, in various areas, uh, both, you know, First Nations in Canada as well as um, some, of the, uh, some of the groups here in the U.S. Although I must admit, in some ways, I'm, I'm sort of puzzled by um, sort of a... Um, lack of, of documentation, if you will, or and I guess when I say documentation, at least with indigenous groups, that usually plays a prominent role in their cultural aspects. But for instance, in, in Puget Sound, I, I've been reading some, you know, some of the old um, uh, logs from the um, first explorers that came in, and they, they didn't really note killer whales, which sort of surprised me. And then, by the same token, you don't see killer whales showing up culturally that I'm aware of. Uh, but I haven't, you know, again, I haven't done an exhaustive review of this. Um, so it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting to me, given how prominent killer whales play a prominent role. Killer whales play currently, but just even going back 50 years. I mean, talking with Ken Balcom who I've known since the mid-70s and, and whatnot, um, in terms of uh, the public's um, awareness uh, of killer whales, it just seems like they're, they're, people weren't aware of them or they weren't here, which I'm not sure which of the two exist. And that's part of what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, what is because we are concerned about recovering southern residents, but the question is, what you know, what does recovery look like? Does recovery look like what existed in the 1960s, or does recovery look like something that existed prior to that? 
um, because we, you know, we, we're probably headed for some type of new normal with this population in terms of the population viability analyses all suggest that it's going to decrease. Um, and, you know, as depressing as that is to think about, on the other hand, I always try to look at it from the standpoint that all of these populations had to begin from some sort of founding event with a, you know, a matriline or two and then expanded from there. So, you know, the point is, is that if we provide viable habitat, i.e., you know, a, a somewhat stable salmon resource for them, mm-hmm. um, they're going to, you know, I think they'll, they will take advantage of it and the population will be able to grow. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, obviously northern resident population has grown. Now, yeah. But the question is, you know, we're concerned about the role of predators and then obviously, um, you know, there are potentially limits to what can be done in terms of recovering, you know, salmon in some of these different habitats. Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes sense. So, I mean, is there a way, just because, like, I mean, I, like, have my undergraduate degree in science and, you know, I'm always curious about the research side of things. Like, is there a way that we can scientifically, like, look at where they have historically been, like, either maybe through, like, fossil records, which I guess would be very hard with marine mammals, or, like, potentially through talking to indigenous people, like, because, I mean, wouldn't that change our management technique if we knew what they've been doing for the last, like, couple hundred years? Well, potentially. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, I'm always, in, you know, concerned about shifting baselines, mm-hmm. and because, you know, I think that there's always, a a potentially major bias associated with, you know, what we see during whatever portion of our lifetime that we're, you know, here. And things were very, very different, you know, 200 years ago. And that's not that long ago, you know, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And so so I think that, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think there are some potential, you know, there's some potential value in, um, what indigenous groups can provide in terms of their information about these, you know, different, you know, different animals that were, were here. I mean, they're certainly been recognized to a certain level in different cultures. And I, again, like I say, given, you know, that we see um, in First Nations in Canada, killer whales because of the way their, their cultural, you know, groups and whatnot are set up. I mean, killer whales figure very prominently along with some other uh, species of animals, uh, but the question is, you know, in other areas, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Um, but it, you know, and, and is that just because of cultural differences, or because the animals weren't here? I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I that's something I don't know. So. Okay, interesting. But but uh, but like you say, so one of the things I've been doing is just reading some of the, uh, you know, logs that um, that. Of like from Vancouver's um, uh, voyages into, which was probably some of the best documented um, of the of the first explorers that came in, and there's just no mention of killer whales uh, in any of the any of the logs in there, despite the fact that they obviously had people on board that were you know uh, interested in in the biology, although they and they were particularly interested in native people. And uh, so they did, you know, talk about some of the things that they 
had and and so on and so forth. And but it wasn't. Uh, uh, there was some mention of marine mammals, but um, nothing specifically about killer whales. Interesting. So anyway, but that's kind of a little bit off topic from that's my own been sort of my own personal interests in terms of trying to sort of put all of this in perspective. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see, you know, what and if you do find anything that comes of that. Yeah. Uh, well, and and but but it has bearing even on this paper though. And that's that's kind of where I was going with this is just that one of the things I tried to emphasize in there is that this is what we're seeing right now. Hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that this was what was existing two or three decades ago. Right. And, you know, the whales, some of the resonance, well, resonance type killer whales are, are fascinating in, in or, or killer whales in general is that in some ways they can be extremely plastic um, hmm. in terms of their behavior. I mean, they, on the other hand, because if you, you know, if you looked at, um, you know, 30 some years ago or more before Mike Big had figured out there was, the, you know, these different ecotypes, you know, mm-hmm. transient types uh, that specialize in marine mammals versus resident types. If you looked at like Eric Hoyt's book that he published in, in 1980 and he had a really nice um, bibliography in there um, that I had gone through years and years ago looking at diet, he would conclude that, you know, killer whales are generalists. That they eat all sorts of different things, right? And while they do, to in some cases, in they are more in the specialist category mm-hmm. than they are in the generalist category. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I, just fascinating to me that you know humans being omnivores, that you see a, a, a population like killer whales, where I think if given the choice, they would eat. 24-7, and there's lots of good reasons. John Ford did a really good job of laying out why Chinook would be a preferred prey item in his 2006 paper because of the fact that the fish are the largest of the, sh- uh, of the salmon and they have the highest fat content, and so the prey sharing amongst, you know, individuals and natural lines, it, it all makes, you know, a lot of sense. But to be able, you know, to rely on essentially one species of prey is just, is, is, I mean, not, I've tried to think about, well, what do other predators do? And, and that mm-hmm. there's, it just, it's always amazing to me that, you know, that um, a group like this can be this specialized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. A, a question that a lot of people ask is just because of the different ecotypes that I hear is, you know, why can't they just switch to marine mammals or can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, no, it's, it's something I've scratched my head a little bit about because I, there's one thing that a lot of folks aren't aware of is that southern residents actually do kill marine mammals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, jays and L's have been documented in quite a number of cases uh, killing harbor porpoise, and they don't eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, for lack of a better term, seem to play with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really quite understand why that is. Uh, that, a, that first of all, why they would just kill them, and then secondly, why they don't consume them. Um, you know, there's probably a 
to some extent a cultural basis uh, for this because, you know, these animals are unique and that they do have culture. And this is, you know, essentially a learned process that, you know, there are certain that they, there are certain things that they eat and certain things they don't eat. And, um, but the, conversely, it, it could be just a, a simple physiological situation where, you know, they're just like, you know, humans that are, you know, vegan versus, you know, uh, meat eaters, you know, you may not have the, um, the you know, the enzymes and whatnot for, for efficient digestion of, um, of, you know, sort of switching back and forth. So a, a fish eater may not necessarily be able to, uh, if they, even if they consumed a, you know, marine mammal, necessarily mm-hmm. process it, uh, you know, it might make them sick. Uh, for all we know. I mean, again, that's speculation, but um, I mean, those are some of the things that I've often thought about because it's always been surprising to me when I've seen them um, on a handful of occasions where they're basically packing around, you know, harbor porpoise and, uh, you know, they're, they're pushing around their snout or they'll tuck under their flipper and that type of thing. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um Okay, so, you know, we talked about science and, like, how this is a snapshot of what's going on right now. Um, so, basically, we kind of get that science keeps us, you know, the most informed as possible as far as, like, you know, how we should go forward with conducting management. What do you think? Right. And, and so, a big part of what we try to do is our job is to provide best available science. And so, that that's essentially what this is at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So I know there are some people out there who are skeptical of science and also just in general there are people out there who, um, you know, are maybe conducting science that I would personally not deem credible. You know, what kind of advice do you have for people who are looking to find the most accurate, the best information um, that is conducted by, you know, actual experts and peer-reviewed? Well, as you say, peer-reviewed. I mean, and that's that's sort of the gold standard for uh, scientific research. Uh, the point is that if uh, other researchers, you know, essentially are convinced that the methodologies that you use are reproducible and you will end up with the uh, with the same result, then that's 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 basically how science proceeds. And a good example of this is just that um, when John Ford's paper came out in 1998. Um, while I I completely agreed with John relative to his conclusion that northern residents were Chinook specialists, I didn't believe that his assertion that southern residents were also Chinook specialists because he had a very small sample size and it was elected over about 30 years. And so um, this was something that, you know, we, so as I had mentioned, Robin Baird and I had been working together, we agreed that, you know, this was an issue. And so, what you do at that point is you go out and you use the same methodology that somebody else had um, had used, and you see if you come up with the same result. And mm-hmm. so that's what we did starting in 2004. So that first paper in 2010 was basically a, an expansion of the results that John had, had um, John Ford had, had come up with in his 1998 paper, and it can confirm that. Um, Chinook, that Southern residents are also Chinook specialists. But, you know, again, part of it was small sample size and period of time, but also that the whales occupy a different area than, than Northern residents do. So right. 
but that's that's how it works. And so, in terms of you know, uh, check to see if the results you get are the same as the results that somebody else got. Right. Excellent. So where do you recommend that people go to find credible science about, you know, salmon and orcas? Well, uh, as we were talking about initially, you know, the peer-reviewed literature is is the best place. Um, It's something that most of the general public, you know, doesn't follow. Um, You know, a, a number of different, you know, groups, including ourselves, try to um, you know put out information on our web pages and whatnot that distill some of this information into you know um, as this paper is, despite the fact that it's you know quite a number of pages long, you can sort of sum it up in about four different bullet points, mm-hmm. and um, and so that's the main thing is that uh, so our our um, outreach staff, I think, doing a really good job of trying to provide that information on our websites so that it's accessible, you know, accessible to everybody without having to spend the time reviewing it. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's it's important for people to look to see what sort of data is actually backing up the information that's being put out there. And it's, if there's no there isn't, you know, if there isn't hard data, then the question is what what are they what are, what are people basing their conclusions on? And if it if it's just speculation, then I think that it's you know it's more people need to be questioning it. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that, and I definitely have seen a lot of speculation. And when I've gone through and read different you know scenarios with the killer whales and like how you've talked about the narrative and you know, cultural value has changed. I've seen, like, you know, they, they have, like, they tried to, they had a bounty on killer whales because, like, based on speculation, they're, like, they're stealing the salmon. Um, right. They were just competitors, as yeah. in the view of. And, you know, that, <laughs> that that conclusion was not necessarily invalid. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, being Chinook specialists, they do, in fact, eat, um, you know, a lot of Chinook in terms of, you know, Don Nolan and our group has has uh, you know done the energetics for these animals, and uh, and so we've we've done some um, you know expansions in terms of uh, what they actually consume, and it it can be a sizable you know number of fish each year. But they're you know that there's not just them. There's northern residents, and then there's also Predators, uh, Brandon Chasco had a really, a couple of really interesting papers that, uh, we worked with him on that, you know, looked at the role of predators and, and not, you know, in terms of, uh, predation on, um, you know, different, uh, salmon stocks and species. So, um, but, you know, and that part of that whole situation is a result of, you know, protections that were put in place after bounty hunting on seals and sea lions and and that and, and those sorts of species. So, you know, the system is, well, you know, been perturbed by anthropogenic activity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so what can we do, um, you know, now that we, we know that they are, you know, eating some other things, um, what do you think is, like, the best next step on, like, an individual level and then as well as just, like, a collective level a lot i know a lot of people are pushing for the removal of the lower snake river dams to happen and like more sustainable fisheries what do you think are our best 
um, solution bar? Well, I mean, those are areas that I, I just would be speculative on my part. I'm not familiar enough with the salmon management aspects of things. It's, it's something I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm very interested in, and I'll be engaging with salmon managers more in the future because I, I want to work with them. Um, you know, we've been providing this information. It, I mean, it finally got into peer review, but over the last couple of years we've been providing it. And so it's been now uh, incorporated into some of the Pacific Fishery Management Council, you know, efforts and whatnot. And, but frankly, my focus has been trying to get this, this paper out. And at this point, my goal is to try to, you know, interact with um, those groups more to make sure that um, they understand exactly the results that we got and help them sort of think through what what types of actions might be beneficial to killer whales. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious, too, were you on the recent study, the effects of vessel distance um, and sets of behavior of endangered killer whales? That was that uh, Marla or Jenny? Yeah, that, yeah, I was. I'm, yeah, I'm a co-author on that. Okay, awesome. Um, so one of the things that I've kind of noticed, like in the community, is that there is, like, there's a lot of, like, I mean, killer whale people in general seem to believe salmon science, but are more skeptical of um, science around vessels. And you know, when I read through it, based like on the information that I have, I, to me, it seems like a very credible, solid study. Um, can you speak to maybe why we, like, obviously, I think it's good to be skeptical of, of everything. You definitely should question and make sure that it's legit. Um, but, like, you know, why is it important that we listen to this science also? Well, one of the things that we're, the, kind of the way I, I look at the risk factors for killer whales is that it does all sort of revolve around prey. Um, in, in that, you know, are the, the main risk factors have always been listed as prey availability. It was contaminants, which in my mind is actually prey quality. Mm-hmm. And then, but, but, and then the third thing was vessel interactions and, and, uh, which is basically noise. And because these animals are acoustic, what you're really talking about is prey accessibility in terms of, if you're reducing their detection range, then you're reducing their access to prey, and that interacts essentially with the prey availability. I think of prey availability being more in terms of number of fish in the ocean. Right. Um, so, but if you if if you look at it in that context, then like you say, everything does sort of come back to prey, and so mm-hmm. that I think you know prey accessibility is you know, something that's very real because these animals are dealing with a dramatically altered acoustic environment. And we're only just now really starting to learn about what sorts of roles these different noise inputs, both, you know, anthropogenic as far as environmental, are playing, you know, in in these areas that whales um, are trying to find fish. So it's... we've come a long ways in this and that we didn't really know much about the acoustic environment at all, for instance, in Harrow Strait back when we started. And, um, and it was, you know, we identified it as an important enough 
aspect of things that, you know, that's why we added a, a staff member Mar- who's Marl Holt um, to basically focus on the acoustic aspects. And then by the same token, she's been working with a postdoc now for the last couple, three, four years, analyzing the ETAG data that we have. And then we're also collecting other types of information from, you know, passive acoustic recorders to try to get a better handle on what, you know, what, how variable is the noise in these environments and, and what, and ultimately, you know, to what degree is masking occurring uh, mm-hmm. of communication and echolocation signals, which is potentially, in, you know, could be inhibiting the animal's ability to, to find prey. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole host of potential things that could be, you know, affecting, you know, their ability to meet their energetic needs. And so, you know, part of it is just, you know, how many fish are in the ocean. And then part of it is, you know, if given that, you know, their acoustic detection range is, you know, not, you know, tens of miles to begin with, um, then it becomes, okay, so if you're, basically reducing that by, you know, 10 or 20% potentially, say, and then the size of the fish has been reduced over time because of of either, you know, the age classes aren't, the large age classes aren't available and or, as some other researchers have recently found, that the size of adult fish is basically decreasing over time. Mm-hmm. You know, that combination of decreased energetic, you know, um, its biomass is is going to potentially have an adverse effect on the population. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, and it seems like there's so many different things. There's no one solution for the killer whales or for the salmon. That's right. No. And I mean, this is one of the things that um, Scott Rumsey, who's the um, <clears throat> second in command at um, on the management side at the regional office. I, Scott has has done some presentations to um, the more whale-focused audiences about salmon. And so I remember one time I was giving a talk the week after Scott had had um, given a talk, and I said, so what's the one message that you want me to try to reiterate, you know, about the salmon aspect of this? And he said that it's really, really complex. and And that's just, you know, makes it hard because – you know, I must admit, even with killer whales, I was hoping that when we started looking at the risk factors, we'd be able to say at some point, oh, it's this one, this is the one we have to focus on. But what I've come to realize is that they really are all sort of intertwined. And it's there is no one thing that we can just focus on and say, this is what we need to fix. But I do feel that prey availability in general is something, because that's within the agency's purview, uh, that we can focus on and try to make sure that we do everything we can to improve that. Absolutely. Awesome. So what do you think that we, you know, my listeners should do on an individual level to help the orcas and the salmon? Well, I think that, you know, it's, on, on the at an individual level, just trying to make sure that the things that we do every day are consistent with, you know, not uh, having an adverse impact on the environment. And that's really hard. Uh, I mean, there's just everything that we do 
potentially has an impact, and people are busy with lots of things, especially right now, and it's hard to think in sort of an environmental context. And by the same token, I think that they need to let the elected officials know what their values are in terms of if they value, um, you know, making sure that tar whales survive and salmon thrive and so on and so forth, they have to make that known to their elected officials so that they do those, they they act accordingly. And and sometimes, you know, these are, are really hard decisions because uh, they have impacts on, you know, have impacts on people in different places and it costs, you know, a lot of money and, you know, these are all, these are all, you know, challenges that, uh, that are faced. But, but that's the, that's, I think, the main thing is just that, you know, if, if people are truly interested in this, they, you know, they, and everybody should be. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that um, is great about killer whales is that, you know, they're an iconic, you know, charismatic species and people identify with them. And I think a lot of that is because their life history is so much like ours. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... Um, and that, and so you know, my feeling is, well, that's great. If that's what motivates people, then by all means, you know, they should uh, should take action to, you know, elicit change throughout. And and it's a it's one of these things again where I was talking about before. You know, just even the smallest, what seem like you know, not necessarily significant efforts at individual levels can in fact add up to, you know, a major change at, you know, at levels up, up the system because we're talking about such a broad swath of watersheds. I mean, it's just hard to believe that things that might be going on, you know, say in Idaho (laughs) or the upper reaches of somewhere in British Columbia, um, you know, on a river, have impacts on, you know, a whale swimming around, you know, in Puget Sound. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all interconnected. That's good, and I think that's really helpful advice. Um, one of the questions that I ask every person that comes on this podcast, what can we learn from the orcas? But I'm curious what you think we can learn from both the orcas and the salmon. Well, one of the things, I guess, that um, <clears throat> I, I – one of the things that always amazes me about salmon is how resilient they are. And if you give them an opportunity, um, i.e., you know, decent habitat, clean water, so on and so forth, they will flourish. Um, they're, they're just a very hardy species. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think that, you know, it's, um, it's just one of these things where I think that it, what I've seen is just that, that if, People are cognizant and willing to give the give fish a chance, and they're then they're going to you know in fact thrive, and that's really what um, I think ultimately will help killer whales is just that you know we don't know there's no guarantee that even if we you know increase the number of salmon that it's going to recover southern residents. I think it's probably our best opportunity um i mean one of our concerns is that we in the process of creating <clears throat> you know potentially more 
salmon for killer whales, we only feed predators, and there's there is mm-hmm. that risk. And there could be some other issue underlying uh, the population that we're just not aware of. I mean, we're looking at things like inbreeding depression and disease mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Those things, particularly the disease aspect of things, is just much, much more challenging to, to try to get a handle on because, mm-hmm. you know, we just, we're looking at the animals remotely and that's not how typically, you know, medicine is done. So mm-hmm. we're trying to come up with new techniques to be able to evaluate them, you know, remotely. And and like the photometric work that uh, John Durbin and Holly Flinback have been doing, I mean, is provided, you know, some information about the body condition of the animals that's been good to document what's going on in terms of, you know, what their body status is. But what we don't really understand is why that condition exists. And that's that's some of the things that I'm I'm interested in trying to get at is is what's what's the underlying issues that are going on with the animals. Absolutely. Um, well, I definitely appreciate all of your insight, and I think that this will be really good food for thought for a lot of our listeners. Are, do you have any final thoughts? No. I mean, I appreciate your interest in uh, trying to get this information out, um, you know, in terms of just, again, you know, the more people we can reach and um, and get them to think about, um, you know, what's important to killer whales is, is great. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week. And as always, check out all of our social media pages, Patreon, etc. If you guys have any questions for Brad or myself, feel free to shoot me an email at info at breachingextinction.com. Also, feel free to send your videos there for the How I Kelp campaign. Don't forget to send those in and keep krilling it. Have a great week.